Hey folks, it's Andy, the analytical preacher. You know, the Bible is really clear that humans are to live in community with other humans, that we are to have strong relationships with other people. As I chat with folks who are dealing with anxiety or stress or depression, one of the common denominators, one of the common themes I see is that they don't have solid relationships that they can really lean on, folks that they can really turn to in a trusting sort of a way. It's not just the Bible. It's not just preachers that speak about this. Academic types, professors and college folks, they've been researching this for years, and they also find that there's some really harmful effects, that our mental health is just not what it should be when we don't have meaningful social connections. And there's been a couple of popular books written, thousands of research articles, but a couple of popular books written on the subject. One's called Bowling Alone. Same author wrote something later called The Upswing. And again, it's just this idea that as societal connections have sort of broken down and we don't participate in bowling leagues and softball leagues and all these other things like we used to do, It's really affecting society's cohesion and it's affecting our mental health. So in this podcast, I just want to speak about kind of from a friendship standpoint, what would the Bible say of advice for the value of friends and how we might build and maintain meaningful, healthy relationships? We'll do a follow-on podcast and we'll look more specifically that at the marriage relationship. Let me start with just a couple of verses. If we go to the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we see, for example, in Proverbs 17, 17, the Bible says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So notice it's not just saying a good friendship makes you happy. A good friendship is somebody there to celebrate with you. No, it actually focuses on the opposite point, that a, that a friend loves at all times, even in the difficult times. And that a brother, which doesn't necessarily have to be a biological brother, but someone as close to you as a sibling, is actually born for adversity. They're to help you, they're to help support you as much in difficult times as they are to rejoice with you in the positive times. Proverbs 18:24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We would probably rewrite that today. Just because you have a number of very superficial sort of social contacts doesn't mean that you're where you need to be. You need true, deep, trusting friendships who are going to stick with you again, even in the difficult times. So it's not the number of connections that you have necessarily. It's the number of meaningful connections. For extroverts, they'll generally be a great Uh, There'll be a larger number of connections. They may be a bit more shallow on average. For the introvert, there's usually fewer, but the ones they have tend to be deep. There's no problem with having a number that are a bit more shallow and only a few that are deep or only having the few that are deep. No issues there as long as you have that person that's going to love at all times and stick with you closer than a brother. One more verse from Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes there, "'And though a man might prevail against one who is alone,' Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, we sometimes want to feel like, and I think this is an American thing for sure, we sometimes want to feel like 
All I need is me. The only person I can count on is me. The only person I need. But the Bible says that's not really true. Two can withstand better. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You just cannot get from anything else, anywhere else in your life, what God intended you to get from a few meaningful friendships or relationships. And it may well be that it's with a parent, that it's with a sibling, that it's with a child. There's no hard and fast rules on this, but we just need those relationships in our life. Here's the problem. I think most of us, if we haven't learned it by the time we're in elementary school, we learn it, the difficult lesson in elementary school, that relationships are hard. Family relationships can be difficult and friendships get even more difficult. Marriage, of course, adds its own unique challenges and probably becomes the most difficult, although the most fulfilling, but the most difficult relationship of all. So in a podcast, it's just impossible to answer everybody's specific issues about their specific relationship. So what I can say, of course, is if you are in danger in a relationship, then you need to get out of that relationship. And there are there in every place and every town, there should be Christian organizations that you can reach out to for help. There may be family or other people. If you're in a dangerous situation, obviously, you need to try to remove yourself from that. But even if you're just in a toxic friendship, you need to get out of that toxic friendship. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it may be difficult in a podcast to really provide valuable information for that. So what I really just want to do is discuss some high-level biblical guidelines that might improve our friendships and give us some more meaningful relationships. The place to start is the place where Jesus starts with almost everything, which is be careful that you're not looking too much at your self. There's some biblical wisdom that says, and it's backed up by modern psychology and psychiatric research. There's biblical wisdom that says, the harder I try to find happiness, the harder I try to make producing my own happiness the most important thing in my life, the less happy I become. The more I focus on things outside of myself, the more happiness seems to overcome me all of the sudden. And so I think the first rule that Christ would give us, that the Bible would give us about meaningful friendships is be sure that you're trying to make the other person in the relationship get value out of it. Of course, we never want to choose our friends. We don't want to choose our spouse by that's the cool person. If that person's my friend, then all these other people will be jealous of me. If that person is my spouse, man, how good am I going to look when I go back to my high school or college reunion in a few years? Those vain, superficial reasons to choose a friend almost guarantees from the beginning that that friendship is ultimately going to fail and probably, as it turns rocky, hurt you and the other person. So we don't want to choose friends for that reason. Most friendships start because we have something in common with someone. Most friendships end due to selfishness on the part of one person or the other. And sometimes that selfishness might be it's an unwillingness to compromise or it's the way we treat the person because we're trying to, quote unquote, use that person to make us happy. And the Bible would say, no, be in that friendship and spend most of your focus on trying to be a good friend to the other person and see if it doesn't ultimately work out better for you that way. 
And the truth is, when you're in that mindset, it becomes easier to recognize when you're in a toxic relationship. As we go through life, almost all of us will at some point end up in a toxic, unhealthy friendship with someone. The interesting thing is, and and it almost becomes comical, the, the interesting thing is, as a minister, when I talk to folks who come to complain about these, why can't they have a decent relationship? Oh, eight times out of 10, four times out of five, they're the toxic person. They're the one. And you have to sort of politely try to say to them, you mentioned the struggle you have with your mom. You mentioned the struggle you have with your dad. You mentioned the struggle you have with your aunt. You don't speak to this grandparent anymore. There's only one of four siblings that you still speak to. You cussed out your coworker. Your neighbor's taking you to court. Do you see a common denominator here? Do, do any of your other siblings, have they broken off the relationship with your mom or with your dad or with each other? Do any of the other neighbors have a problem with the neighbor that you're struggling with? Does anybody else work? It's hard to get people to come around to that idea that they're the toxic person. But if you can honestly look in the mirror and say to yourself, my honest goal with this relationship is to try to be the best friend that I can be, and yet it seems as if, then it makes it easier, I think, for you to spot that you might be in a toxic relationship and you, and again, you need to pull yourself out. The person may try to make you feel guilty in order to maintain that friendship, but you're not obligated to be friends with someone who's toxic and unhealthy. You're just not obligated to do that. I think the true issue most of us have is honestly being able to say, being able to give examples. Here's how I know I'm not the toxic one. Here's how I know I'm trying to do and be the best friend that I can be for this other person. And I have to tell you from personal experience and from individuals that I've spoken with, sometimes just one or in many cases, both of the friends, it is amazing as you just change that mindset a bit. And instead of saying, what can I get out of this friendship today? Why is this person not making me happy? Why are they not doing what I want in this instance or that instance? When we say to ourselves, I want to be the best friend that I can be. And then it sort of catches with that friend and they now want to sort of return that favor. Now they want to sort of be the best friend that they can be. It is amazing what happens to that friendship, to that relationship. Of course, you and your friend are both humans. Humans are incredibly imperfect and our relationships will always be imperfect and our relationships will always need check-ins and our relationships will always need some guardrails and some biblical guidelines to help keep them on focus. So let me just kind of throw out here a couple of biblical guidelines that I really think can make a difference. Proverbs 15.1, again, we're going to stay in the wisdom literature. The writer says, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Rephrase it this way. When you have been hurt by someone, when you have been treated wrong by someone, lied to by someone, whatever it is, and you are hurt or mad, you, st- you need to try to stay as calm as possible. Because when you're upset, when you're agitated, the Bible likes that word, when your emotions are upset or agitated, you're likely to strike And just by striking, put the other person on the defensive and make them far less willing to admit what they did was incorrect. It's hard to do. And so you really have to say, you almost need to practice it in advance. 
to say, when I'm hurt, when I'm upset, this is what I'm going to do. Hey, friend, can we talk? Because you said this or you did this. or I don't understand why you said or did that. And it made me angry. Or it hurt my feelings or it put a wedge between us. And I just want to talk it out. And I'm not saying that I've never done that to you or whatever. But in this instance, I want to focus on what you did to me. If I've done things to you, then we'll absolutely put that on the list next. They may still get defensive. They may still lash out out of guilt or maybe because you're accusing them falsely. But at least it gives you an opportunity to rationally discuss the issue. Nobody thinks about it. Nobody plans for it until they're in that situation. Never thought I would be in that situation with this friend. And I am so mad and so frustrated and so hurt. I mean, when I see them, I am unloading. And just by virtue of the fact that you unload, you almost eliminate the opportunity to fix the issue. Proverbs 17, 14, something very similar. The writer says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Here, This is what that means. When we are having a frank conversation with someone, if you are friends with someone long enough, at some point, you will have a frank conversation with them about how things are going. It is so easy for that conversation to roll out of control. And once it does... It is hard to put the wind back in the bottle. What Proverbs 17, 14 is saying is, before that happens, take a break. Just ease back. Here's the problem. And and I'm going to argue that both of these come from our selfishness, from our self-focus. When we feel something wrong has been done to us, we don't want the other person to get away with it. We say things like, I don't deserve to be treated that way. I will not let them get away with that. Here's the problem. We've treated other people not well, maybe because we were upset about something else, just having a bad day. Maybe we did it and immediately regret it. and Ah, I shouldn't have said it like that. But we've done it ourselves. So really, how do we deserve to be treated? But even though you don't deserve to be treated a certain way, and God disapproves of it, You're human in a friendship, in a relationship with another human. It is going to happen. If you say, I refuse to let them get away with this. Or if you say, at this point, I value winning this argument over saving that relationship. That is a petty and selfish approach. But here's the thing. When our anger gets to a certain point, every single one of us reaches that point where inside we're making the calculation. At this point, by gosh, I'd rather win this doggone argument than salvage this ridiculous relationship. Again, that's an immature, petty, and selfish thing to do. But think about when do you do your dumbest things? When you're the maddest, when you're the most emotionally agitated. I've seen so many friendships break apart that if they had come and we had been able to talk in a calm manner, we could have worked the issue out in four and a half minutes and then wouldn't had some chicken nuggets after that. But because the argument started and then they brought up something from the past, how dare you bring that up again? Their anger goes up, their anger goes up, and then it's just, now I want to win. 
I even had one person tell me I reached a point where I was intentionally trying to inflict emotional damage on them. I regret it now, but I don't think I can fix it now. But I was so mad. I literally wanted to hurt that person emotionally. How hard is it to take a break when the, when the passion starts to rise? It's incredibly difficult. Again, think about it. Pray about it. Practice it in advance. When someone has done you wrong, if you say they've done me so wrong, I don't trust them anymore. I can't trust them anymore. Then that's fine. You can end the relationship. If you don't want to end it, then go and talk to them about it. But tell them, I really need to resolve this, but I really need this relationships to stay intact. So here's some ground rules that the Bible tells me we should put forward as we go to do this. But guys, let me close with this because this is important. Most friendships start because we find someone with whom we have something in common. Most friendships end because selfishness, self-focus won't allow the guilty party to admit that they're the guilty party. That's the truth. And maybe it's because I really don't think I'm wrong. I just think I'm this marvelous person. I couldn't do anything wrong. Or maybe it's because I've got such low self-esteem. I've got such low self-value and worth that having to admit I'm wrong just makes me feel like a bad person. And I just have a hard time bringing myself to it. This is what the Bible says. Jesus, in his sermon on the mount, you'll find this in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Boom. Admit when you are wrong, even if you're on your way to church and you know that you've done something wrong. Hey, they may have done something wrong too, but two wrongs don't make a right. If they've done something wrong and somebody has to be the first to admit that they're wrong, who do you think Jesus is going to say? You. You did something wrong. Go admit it. Well, they did too. That's irrelevant. If you did something wrong, go and admit that you did something wrong. And this is what often happens. You go and you admit you did something wrong. The friend says, yeah, I know I wasn't innocent in that either. I didn't have the courage to come and admit that I was wrong. I really respect you that you did. Now give me a few minutes to really pour my heart out and apologize for my part in it because I've really found a newfound respect for you and all of a sudden I value this friendship more than I ever did. The first person to admit that they were wrong is not the weaker person. They almost always turn out to be the stronger person, and they build the relationship off of that foundation. Do not be too self-focused in your relationships. Why do your relationships struggle? It's either you're in a relationship with someone who is toxic and mentally unhealthy, minority of the time, or you're just too self-focused. Worry about their value in the relationship over yours. Don't try to win an argument. Don't try to prove a point. Always try to save a relationship and don't be too stubborn and selfish to admit when you are wrong, even if the other person is unwilling to admit that they are wrong. I'll close out with Romans 12 verse 18, which says this, 
if possible, Paul writes, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Everything doesn't depend on you, but as far as it does, as far as any of those elements depend on you, live peaceably with all. Thanks for listening, folks. This is Andy, the Analytical Preacher.